One of the many things that attracts people to Christmas is the music, whether it's the sacred music or it's the popular music. We all have our favorites. One song that continues to be popular, even though now it's almost 60 years old. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. Good old Dr. Seuss. Song about a Grinch who stole Christmas. You'd have to be pretty downright mean, indeed, if you stole Christmas. So I'm going to quote to you some of the lyrics. Maybe you have it memorized or you'll, you'll, you'll finish it. The Grinch was as cuddly as a cactus and as charming as an eel. There's more, of course. The song continues to describe the Grinch. You're a monster, Mr. Mr. Grinch. Your heart's an empty hole. Your brain is full of spiders. You've got garlic in your soul, Mr. Grinch. I wouldn't touch you with a 39 and a half foot pole. Your heart is full of unwashed socks. Your soul is full of gunk. The three words that best describe you, and I quote, are stink, stank, and stunk. You're a rotter, Mr. Grinch. You're the king of sinful socks. Your soul is an appalling dump heap, overflowing with the most disgraceful assortment of deplorable rubbish, imaginable, mangled, and tangled up knots. You're a mean one indeed, Mr. Grinch. This is a kid's story. (laughs) Now, what does any of this have to do with our message this morning? Well, the Grinch song was not written back then, but I imagine if it were, people would have sung it about the character in our passage today. People viewed this man's soul as an unwashed, full of socks, full of gunk, the king of sinful socks. Would you please locate Luke 19? Luke 19 is Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third book of the Christian New Testament. We made a real person who had more garlic in his soul than the Grinch. Now, at first glance, Luke 19 may have appeared. It has little to do with Christmas. My wife asked me this week, what are you preaching on? I said Luke 19, and she said, I quote, what does that have to do with Christmas at all? And I said, congratulations, you just made the sermon introduction. And she said, I've always wanted to be famous. So, well, this account reminds us why the babe in the manger has come. Now, we're going to take a little runway to lead up to Luke 19 and see why we are here. Now, Luke records, Dr. Luke, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the big numbers of the chapters, a little number of the verses, you can just follow along if you don't have a copy of the scripture. But Luke records some of the most well-known or the most well-known historical accounts of the Christmas story. You can even hear Luke's well account. If you tune into a Charlie Brown Christmas, you will hear Luke's account of the Christmas story. So Luke opens his eyewitness account with those now familiar explanation how Mary, upon whom the Holy Spirit had come, gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and she laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. And then Dr. Luke, being a doctor that he is, continues the birth announcement that he's going to give us, a divine birth announcement that we hear given to blue-collar shepherds who are keeping watch over their flocks by night. In the announcement, we hear the mission for this baby boy's life. Listen for the announcement. And the angel said to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There in the birth announcement is the mission of the baby. 
He's a king who's come to be a savior. Now, the next time we see Jesus in Luke's gospel as the as the empowered, anointed savior, he's 12 years old. His adoptive father, Joseph, and his mother, Mary, had been to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. But as they leave the holy city, swollen from all the pilgrims from Passover, Jesus is separated from his parents. And three days later, it takes them three days to find their 12-year-old son. And he's in the temple with teachers. And they're astonished at this 12-year-old boy's answers and understandings. And when his mother asks him, the mother finds him. Joseph, the mom always finds the lost kid or lost item. It's the mom who finds Jesus in the temple. And when she asks, why have you done this? Jesus replies, almost matter-of-factly, don't you know I must be in my father's house about my father's business. The point is that Jesus knew he must align himself with his father's purpose. He had come to be the savior. The next time we see Jesus in Luke's gospel, it's some two decades or more later, as Jesus begins his ministry as an adult, he stands up in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth and he declares, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. And this, of course, was in direct fulfillment, everybody saw, to Isaiah, an ancient Jewish prophet. So from his birth to his childhood into adulthood, Luke records how Jesus viewed his Holy Spirit-empowered mission was to fulfill the mission that was revealed in his name. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from his sins. And throughout the account, Luke carefully records Jesus doing just that wherever he went. And Luke 4, Jesus explains that he has to keep moving from town to town. Why, Jesus, do we have to leave this town? And Jesus says in Luke 4, 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom for I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus' own self-understanding is in keeping with the birth announcement. That he's on a mission empowered by the spirit from the father to save people like you and like me. But just how was he to save people? Would it be by kicking the boot of Rome off of the the neck uh, uh, of the people of God, the Jews? Would he uh, would he suplex Caesar off the top rope with the most Morbius wrestling move of all? Would he a descendant of David? Would he, as a son of David, come like David of old with a sword in his fist and a sling in his hand? How would he save his people? Well, three times in his adulthood, Jesus says how he's going to save his people. And he would save people not by taking life. He would save people by giving up his own life. You in Luke 19? Well, go go just a bit ahead of that to Luke 18. In Luke 18, 18, Jesus meets a rich young ruler. The man had power in two ways, at least. One, he's rich and he has position. He's a ruler. And this ruler explained to Jesus how faithful he had been, how diligent he had been in keeping all of the commandments and doing all that he could. And Jesus reveals, perhaps surprisingly so to us readers and them then, is that the rich young ruler had indeed been faithful to what he had said. Except, of course, in the one area of life that the Bible was actually pressing in on him. His money and his treasure. Friends, if we claim that we are being faithful 
but not following Jesus in the one area in which his word presses in on our lives, we're actually self-deceived. We're painting our vices with virtue's colors like this rich young ruler. Well, the disciples are taken back by the interaction. They ask, well, who then can be saved? I mean, if a somewhat moral person can't be saved, Jesus, if we're so blind to our own blind spots like this young ruler, if it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle, then who can be saved, Jesus? Well, Jesus tells them you're getting the point. Salvation has always been possible for everybody anywhere. But what is impossible to man is actually possible with God. Then Jesus pivots and explains just how it is that God would save impossible people. Luke 18, you in verse 31? Here's how he would save impossible people. Here's his final hint. Taking the 12, he said to them, look, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Like what? He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Now, this is such an unheard of way to save anyone, verse 34. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now, from this point on in Luke's account, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's a week away. I mean, he's right at the cusp near the end, ready to enter Jerusalem. This is the purpose that he sent. He's going to die. So when we come to Luke 19, we have the final personal interaction that Jesus has with an individual before he enters Jerusalem. And in this final interaction, Luke has placed it here because he wants us to see that Jesus's final interaction before he marches to the place of his death summarizes his entire ministry. Jesus is going to meet a first century Grinch whose soul was an appalling dump heap. This is the day Jesus seeks out an impossible sinner to show what kind of incomparable savior he is. So what does Luke 19 have to do with Luke 2? It shows you what his birth is all about. For unto you a child is born, a savior. So now let's watch you in Luke 19. Let's watch now the Savior seek an impossible sinner. Luke 19, verse 1. This is what Holy Scripture says. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when the crowd saw it, they all grumbled. Jesus has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, 
Today, salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Let's note first the setting of the Savior's seeking. He's passing through Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. Why? Well, the great physician has two final house calls to make. Luke 18 ends with the account of Jesus in Jericho as well. And then Jesus makes a blind man see. Now in Luke 19, Jesus is about to do something more impossible. He's about to make a rich man see that he's blind. Remember what Jesus said earlier about the rich young ruler, how difficult it is for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is about to do the impossible on this man. A blind man knows his need, but a rich man, a person rich in wisdom or wealth, has lots of needs, but doesn't know it. Now, Jericho is a city that Jesus passes through as he makes his final approach to Jerusalem. It's one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities on the earth, some 20 miles south of Jerusalem. It's a beautiful city, an oasis city, a city of palm trees where weary pilgrims could stop and get a drink from a well and see the beautiful city. Now, the location also has an important economic function as well, because Jericho, being a cut through city and a kind of tourist destination of sorts, is where large taxes could be collected on a lot of people. And in verse 2, Luke introduces us to one of the grinchiest tax collectors of them all. So now we're moving from the setting of the Savior's seeking to the sinner of the Savior's seeking. Verses 2 to 7. Have you ever been in a restaurant? I don't know, someplace, gym, classroom, wherever. And somebody walks in who thinks that he owns the place. And you maybe, you elbow, you hit your friend and you say, get a load of this guy. Mr. Oreo Big Stuff just walked in the room or the field. Well, Luke does that in an ancient way, beginning of verse 2. Many modern translations smooth it out because it's not good English. But Luke actually begins in verse 2 in the ESV with this. And behold. That's the first century way of saying, get a load of this guy. Check this guy out walking in. Luke wants us to stop and get a look at this person. And who do we see? First. It's a man named Zacchaeus. His name means something like pure or righteous. But why does Luke say? That's why Luke says, get a look at this guy. His name means righteous and pure. But this guy has an impure job. He's a tax collector. And not just a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. Now, insert all the tax collector jokes you'd like here. Now, we don't like the IRS today. They didn't like tax collectors then more even today. Why? Well, the first century scholars tell us that they were classed officially and a class of murderers and robbers hated in the Jewish world. They're often grouped in the same category of robbers, prostitutes, murderers, and other questionable people they viewed as sinners. Why? Because these were Jewish tax collectors who'd collaborated with the Roman government and served now imperial ends. There's a sense then they viewed them as these are people who sleep with the enemy. You're you're a traitor to us. And moreover, a tax collector were notorious for exploiting people. Rome had their taxation and they said, you can charge whatever you want above that. So here's, here's Zacchaeus 
who charges exorbitant fees, whatever he wants, to feather his own nest. He could charge whatever tax rate he wants to whomever he wants and has the authority to enforce it. Zacchaeus was certainly in a category of power. No one would have denied that Zacchaeus was in a position to be an oppressor who used his power that way. He would no doubt have made the poor even more poor. He would have taken houses and lands, taken the shirt off your back, and taken the last chicken from your family or your cow, and then slept like a baby. Everyone hated and feared a chief tax collector like Zacchaeus, and they did so with good cause. But not only is Zacchaeus a powerful mafia-like mob boss, he's also filthy rich. And his wealth comes by working for Rome and then extorting it from his own people. Other than Herod, it's difficult to think of a man in the New Testament as hated and as rich and powerful as Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. He had termites in his smile and all the tender sweetness of a seasick crocodile. And yet, this man was born with one characteristic that on this day was about to change his life. What was it? Look at the end of verse 3. He was small of stature. In a word, he was short. And the old King Singer song, short people have no body to love. He was short. There's a scene in Dennis the Menace film of 1990s where Mr. Wilson, played by Walter Matthau, notices that Dennis is using a boy named Gunther, to cheat in the game of hide-and-seek. Mr. Wilson realizes that Gunther is a spy who keeps his eyes open and tells Dennis where all of his friends are hiding. So Mr. Wilson wants to equalize the game. So Mr. Wilson uh, tells Gunther that his daddy just called him, wants him to go home so he can take him to the ice cream store. Now, Mrs. Wilson scolds him because it's a lie, to which Mr. Wilson retorts, well, he better get used to it. Disappointment's going to be a big part of Gunther's life. He's a foot short for his age, and he's cross-eyed. He needs to get used to disappointment. Well, Zacchaeus wasn't cross-eyed, but he was more than a foot short for his age. And it presents a real problem to a guy who has everything. Now, no doubt the stories of Jesus of Nazareth had spread far and wide. Maybe Zacchaeus had even heard there was a tax collector named Matthew who was a follower of Jesus. Whatever it was, Zacchaeus runs ahead of the gathering crowd and he climbs up into a a sycamore tree. This is not the American variety of sycamore tree, but something that has a short trunk that sprawls more lateral and horizontal than, than vertical and straight up. I know we think of this as a little kid's story, but it's not. You wouldn't want your kids around Zacchaeus. He's a rich and powerful man, but do you see the humor in it? He's climbing a tree. Behold the man indeed. It's not what we expect of a grown man, a man with resources, a rich man who's an influential tax collector. Look at him. He's up a tree. But the most important thing to know about this man is revealed at the end of verse 7. Would you peek down there? How does the crowd describe the man? The man is a what? A sinner. And in context, the worst kind of sinners. Of all the sinners in the world, this wealthy, 
privileged oppressor, Zacchaeus, is among the worst. And Luke's point is just that. Behold this sinner. And that sinner, whose name means righteous, is on a collision course with the one who is righteous. What's going to happen? Now, what Jesus does next might be more startling than who Zacchaeus is. We've seen the context of the Savior seeking and the sinner he's seeking, but now the scandal of the Savior's seeking. I've already pointed out the dramatic tension that we are. Zacchaeus, the righteous one who's not righteous, is about to come face to face with the one who is righteous. What will Jesus do? What do you expect when the very giver of the law is about to meet with a chief lawbreaker? Well, when Jesus comes to the very place where Zacchaeus is, Jesus executes justice and he lights the tree on fire and he burns Zacchaeus alive, liberating the entire region from the villain. And they all carry Jesus and say, oh, captain, my captain. Well, that's exactly what Jesus doesn't do. And that's why they're so scandalized by it. Jesus looks up and addresses the man, not with an insult, but with his name. Behold the personal nature of Christ's seeking. He uses his name. In our world, we may not always be able to call people by their pronouns, but we can always call them by their name. However evil Zacchaeus is, Jesus treats him like a person. He calls him by his name. Moreover, here's the scene. Zacchaeus is now sitting above Jesus, a man of reputation and wealth and power. But Jesus looks up and appeals to the person not on the basis of his titles and offices at all. You know, when we all stand before God, all of our titles and offices and influence will mean nothing. But we not only see the personal nature of Christ seeking, but do you, did you hear the urgent pleading nature of of our Savior, hurry, come down. There's urgency in the Savior's voice. And did you note how forward Jesus is? He invites himself over to Zechariah's house. I must, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. Now, you probably tell your kids, like I tell them all the time, don't invite yourself over to somebody's house. Don't say, can I come over and play today or whatever. You don't, that's not polite. You don't invite yourself over. Well, it was the same in Jesus' day and perhaps all the more given the code of hospitality that existed. So this is a bold, formal request from Jesus. There's nothing like it in all of the historical records. One commentator notes, here is the only instance in the Gospels in which Jesus invites himself over to somebody's place. A self-invitation was not the norm in Jewish custom and it verged on impropriety. Jesus is being a bit rude. You can imagine the reactions in the great crowds then. What? First, is, is Jesus actually speaking to this clown? Wait, he, he did not just invite himself over to his house. I know I didn't hear that. That's part of the point. Indeed, it's taking us to the main point because in verse 7, they're no longer talking about Zacchaeus as the sinner. Now they're talking about Jesus as a sinner. Verse 7, and when they saw it, the crowd grumbled, 
Jesus has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Meaning Jesus is a sinner. Like the privileged Pharisees in the previous chapters, now these common and oppressed people murmur and grumble in the same way. Here's a scandal. Even the poor and oppressed people can be scandalized that Jesus can show such kindness to a rich person. What they don't realize is they're just as blind to their sin as Zacchaeus is to his. The crowd here is like the older brother in Luke 15 in the story of the prodigal son. They are being self-righteous. After all, they're the ones that Zacchaeus has sinned against. Their self-righteousness is just as bad as Zacchaeus's unrighteousness. Here's a shocker. The rich and poor will be in hell. The moral and immoral will be in hell. The soul that sins will die. Sin, like death, is not a respecter of persons. It infects all classes and conditions and countries and races. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a political prisoner, as he lay rotting on the straw in a Soviet prison, wrote, Gradually it was disclosed to me the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but the line of good and evil passes right through every human heart, through all human hearts. This is the scandal of the Savior's seeking. And don't you see the dramatic irony? The story begins with Jesus as a hero of sorts. Everybody wants to see him. But at this moment, the anger of the crowd, the murmuring shifts from Zacchaeus, and now it goes to Jesus. The story began with one villain, but now we have two villains. Now we're just a week away from the cross. And a moment that foreshadows the cross, Jesus is already being named among the transgressors. Not only that, we get a foreshadowing that Jesus is not only identifying with sinners, but now Jesus is standing in the place of sinners. I know you see that, don't you? How the reproaches that had fallen on Zacchaeus were now falling on Jesus. On this day in Luke 19, Jesus' reputation was being crushed for Zacchaeus' iniquities. But one week later, Jesus' soul would be crushed for Zacchaeus' iniquities. He is not a savior ashamed of sinners. He is a savior who's willing to stand in the place of sinners. And did you notice the response of Zechariah to the scandal of the Savior seeking? First, verse 6, Zechariah receives him joyfully. He hurries down. He comes down. He receives him joyfully. Now, what has happened? This urgent, forward, pleading nature of the Savior had melted the heart of this first century Grinch. And at this moment, maybe for the first time in his life, something other than treasure was starting to own Zacchaeus' heart. Zacchaeus was beginning to treasure Jesus more than his treasure. Why? C.S. Lewis wrote of his own conversion and surprised by joy because the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And in his compulsion, we find our liberation. 
The urgent and effectual call of the seeking Savior had drawn the poison out of another sinner's heart and filled it with amazing love. Second, Zechariah not only responds with true joy, but true repentance. That's the point of verse 8. I've given all my riches to the poor, and anything that where I've defrauded, I restore fourfold. Now, this is not a restoration to people whom he doesn't know in another city, another place, or, or to those he never knew in another decade or so. But to anyone he has personally defrauded, he repays more than the Old Testament law actually requires. Christ's over-the-top love for Zacchaeus now expresses itself in Zacchaeus's over-the-top love for those he had sinned against. He's doing more than the law required. What a change had come into Zacchaeus' heart. Zacchaeus' transformation is like but greater than that of Ebenezer Scrooge at the end of A Christmas Carol. It could be said of Zacchaeus, you know, you know, Zacchaeus too. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man, as good as the old city knew, or, or, or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh and little heeded them. Of course, this story really happened. And Zechariah, Zacchaeus, I'm so sorry. I might just say Z, Z didn't meet three ghosts, but he had met the Son of God. And listen, it wasn't the fear of death that changed this man. It was the love of the Savior that changed him. Now, we don't have the whole story about the dinner conversation with, with Zacchaeus. We don't know all that was said. But coupled with this hospitable love of Christ, it totally undid Zacchaeus. It undid him and made him a new man. So we've seen the context of the Savior's love, the scandal of it, and the only response to it. The only way this story presses in on all of us today. I could say this too. The word of God is alive. It's active. Christ is risen and reigning. And today, if you are here, young or old, do you hear the Savior saying to you, hurry, come down. I want to bring salvation to your life today. From this passage, he pleads with every one of us here. Do you know this Savior? Do you hear him calling you, come down, leave your work, leave your, your, your self-righteousness, leave your own way of thinking you're right, leave it all behind and come meet the Savior. Receive him joyfully and receive him with a repentance that's undeniable to everybody. Receive him with, with true joy and true repentance. An illustration of his great love for us. Now you know this. Even as we've looked at Second Samuel, we are not Jesus in the story. We're all Zacchaeus in the story. We're either Zacchaeus or we're the crowd. And what happened to Zacchaeus? And what has to happen to every person? In mere Christianity, Lewis describes perhaps what happened to the sinner. When a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that's still in him. When a man is getting better, he understands more clearly the evil that's in him. But when a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. This is common sense, Lewis says. 
You, you understand sleep when you are awake, not while you're sleeping. You understand the nature of drunkenness when you're sober, not when you get drunk. When a man is getting better, he knows how evil he is. In other words, Zacharias became, as he became better, he, became, he was more aware of how bad he was. Friends, that's always the first and final hurdle you have to get over before Christ can be your savior. That you are worse than you think you are. That he had to die because of you. Receive him joyfully. Repent fully. But before and beneath and above and after and all around, the real point of the story of the last story before Jesus enters Jerusalem, the summary of the entire book is verse 10. Jesus says, you know what this story is about? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Especially impossible cases like Zacchaeus. Remember, it's hard for a rich man to be saved. It's impossible. I just showed you. It's being done. The account begins now. Now you notice this, of course. The account begins with the impression that Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus. But we know that Zacchaeus is only seeking Jesus because Jesus has been seeking Zacchaeus for a long time. The decisive seeker, writes Edwards. There's the word. The decisive seeker is not Zacchaeus, but Jesus, who's accomplishing God's mission foretold by the prophets to seek and save the lost. He's on a mission. In 1878, Jean, I don't, I don't know how to say her last name, I-G-E-L-O, Igelo, Iglo, Jean, wrote a hymn that, Zechari- that Zacchaeus would have sung, Zechariah would have sung it too, had they known it. Because you sing it too, if you know the Lord. It's identified simply by this first line, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. 1878, here's the song Zechariah is belting out now. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Thou didst reach for thy hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm vexed sea. It was not so much that I took hold on thee as thou, dear Lord, took hold of me. So what does Luke 19 have to do with Christmas? How do we get? I mean, my wife said again, Zacchaeus is not in the manger. That's what she said to me. You're right, dear. But Luke 19.10 is the summary of why the baby is in the manger. And before the foundation of the world, God had chosen in Christ to save Zacchaeus from his. The answer is everything. Another hymn writer. It's Christmas time, right? I can't leave you with a Grinch in your mind. In the 1880s, somebody, some, some preacher made this glorious connection in a hymn. Now, here it is. Jesus, my Savior, to Bethlehem came, born in a manger to sorrow and shame. Oh, it was wonderful. Blessed his name. He came seeking for me, for me, seeking for me, for me. 
There's Luke 2 and Luke 19. Jesus, my Savior, to Bethlehem came, born in a manger to sorrow and shame. Oh, it's wonderful. Bless his name. He came seeking for me, for me, seeking for me, for me. Do you hear him? Do you hear him seeking you? That's the message of Christmas. That he's come back to seek, come to seek and save the lost. That means that whether you are self-righteous, poor person like the people of this crowd or the wealthy sinner like Zacchaeus, in a word, everyone is lost. You're lost. You're so lost, only the death of the Son of Man can save you. Zechariah learned that every treasure that you seek will require you to give up everything to get it. Sex and money require everything from you. Affirmation and approval require everything from you. Intellect and insight, you seek that treasure, it'll cost you your life to get it. But Zacchaeus learned that every treasure you seek requires your life. But he learned on this day that Jesus is the one treasure who gave up his life to make Zacchaeus his treasure. He came to seek the lost. He came to make Zacchaeus his treasure so that Ephesians 2, he might display the riches of his grace in the ages to come. Don't you see how much Jesus loves you? Three things as we land the plane. Christmas is a reminder that Christ has come for the worst of sinners, and that means there's hope for you. Rich or poor, immoral or moral. Number two, Christmas is a reminder that Christ has come for the worst of sinners, and that might scandalize you. Until Jesus scandalizes you, he can never heal you. And if you get close enough to Jesus, he will do something to scandalize you like this. It's on the front of your order of worship. Anyone who reads the Gospels, especially the third Gospel, knows that Jesus is a friend of the rich, the poor, and oppressed. The story of Zacchaeus testifies that Jesus is a friend of the rich, even rich oppressors as well. Luke's story of the incarnation is not developed according to a stereotype of justice in which the poor are befriended and the rich condemned. The fellowship of Jesus is not offered as vindication of poor and condemnation of rich, but as good news of great joy to all who are lost, whether rich or poor. Grace is forever scandalous because it's forever undeserved. It's doubly scandalous for Zacchaeus, a rich oppressor who seems so much less deserving of grace than Lazarus, a wretched outcast. Grace is a scandal because it insists on including those whom we wish to exclude. The story of Zacchaeus illustrates that kind of grace. Christ has come for the worst of sinners. There's hope for you. Christ has come for the worst of sinners. That might scandalize you. And that Christ has come for the worst of sinners means... You should seek them too. Here's what I mean. I save that to the very, very end so that we don't mistake that this story is not about us being soul winners first or primarily. Behold the love of Christ in seeking impossible sinners. That's the point of the story. In seeking your life. You need this Jesus to seek you or you have no hope. Do you see how he loves you? That's the point. But now here's my question. How does Christ continue to seek and save the lost today? Here's the admonition of another great sinner who is changed by the love of Christ. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
thank you very much, but how will they call on his name in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in whom they've never heard? Romans 10. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? You see the connection? The seeking Savior seeks sinners through us, Romans 10. So we have this context of the Savior seeking, the scandal, our response of treasuring faith and true repentance. But now can I put this? Here's one application. You have the imperative of the Savior seeking. Be a part of the Savior seeking sinners, the most unlikely of sinners, the worst of sinners, the meanest of sinners. So here you go. Leave the United States and go because Christ is seeking to save sinners. Leave your house and go. Because Christ is seeking to save the lost. Leave your desk and speak to the person in the cubicle next to you and go to lunch because Christ is seeking and saving sinners. You, you came to the Christmas parade. You know why you did? Because Christ is seeking and saving sinners. Submit to this baby as your savior. Treasure him as your only hope. Then join the Savior's mission to seek and save the lost. Don't you know how much he loves you? Don't you know how much he loves you? Now, you're not going to keep that kind of love to yourself, are you?